Uh, we're reading this morning from Luke, cha Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, then 21 to 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of, the Isaiah, of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley should be filled in, every mountain and hill made, no, made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Thank you. Thanks, Allison. Good job with Iturea and Trachonitis and Tetrarch and stuff. I didn't have to give you that verse to read, but you pulled it off. Good job. We're continuing today in our series of messages on the person of Jesus as he is revealed for us in the Gospel of Luke. And we started this series back in the Christmas season already, and today is actually our sixth sermon in this series, but it's only today that we finally come to Jesus as an adult. All four of the Gospels introduce Jesus to us at 30 years of age in the context of his baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. Uh, Mark and John's Gospels have nothing of Jesus' life before this moment. Matthew and Luke record some of the events surrounding Jesus' birth, and Luke adds one episode of Jesus at 12 years old in the temple, just a brief snapshot. But older, other than that, uh, Jesus' life really is a mystery to us. The four Gospels are not biographies of Jesus, and nor are they intended to be. Uh, I like to read historical biographies, and I have a few of them on my shelf waiting to be read. But they're long, and a good biography will typically run 500 to 1,000 pages, sometimes even longer than that. They normally include, as you might assume, the stories of the birth of the person, their childhood and early years, their move into adulthood, and right through right up until the time of their death. Biographies are filled with either formative experience in the life of the person or sometimes just interesting experiences. Now, the Gospels, by contrast, are remarkably slim. The longest one is Luke, and in my Bible, it runs to about 30 pages. And again, apart from the birth accounts in Matthew and Luke and the snapshot of Jesus in the temple at 12 years old, the Gospels focus not even just on Jesus' adulthood, but on three years of Jesus' life. And in fact, half of the Gospel material is devoted to one week from Jesus' entry into Jerusalem through his crucifixion and his resurrection. So the Gospels are not full accounts of Jesus' life. The writers had a very distinct purpose in recording and writing what they did. 
And their purpose was to reveal the divine identity, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, in light of that purpose, they further selected their material to include based on who they were writing for. For example, Matthew writes to a Jewish audience to reveal Jesus to them as the Messiah, as, as the king in the line of David, as the fulfillment of their prophecy. Mark writes, probably, for the church in Rome. John writes for the Greek and Gentile audience. And he includes things that the other three didn't include. And this is what John says about why he wrote the things he wrote. In John 20, he said, I write this so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And Luke has a particular aim too. He's writing for his friend Theophilus. And he's writing, in Luke's words, so that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's what Luke says. So all four of them, in their own style and for their own particular audience, reveal Jesus' identity and ministry and death and resurrection. And all of them, despite their differences, all of them have Jesus' ministry beginning at the baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. And so, so that Jesus' baptism has great significance for his ministry is clear. And I think that what happens at Jesus' baptism has great significance for us and for our ministry as well. Now Luke chapter 3 begins with a description of the ministry of John the Baptist. John was, of course, the forerunner of the Messiah. Okay, at some point, we don't know when, but at some point he emerged from the desert and spoke as a prophet proclaiming that the kingdom of God was near. And his personal ministry calling was to help the people prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord. And how he did that, we read in chapter 3. We didn't read the whole thing today. But he called people to repentance. He called them to purity. He called them to ethical living. And he baptized people or immersed them in water. And the baptism was for them a symbol of their own desire to be immersed or submerged in the will of God, to be surrendered fully to God's lordship of their lives. And in Luke's account, he calls it a baptism of repentance. And John the Baptist's message and ministry of baptism really struck a chord for the people at a time when the longing for the kingdom of God and the coming of Messiah was at almost fever pitch, was at its height. Now we, we tend, I think, to picture John the Baptist as something of a lone figure, don't we? This strange guy just preaching somewhere in the wilderness. But John had disciples, just like Jesus later did. And there is a first century, so contemporary with Jesus and John, Jewish historian named Josephus. And he writes that Herod the king so feared John's influence over the people that he had John put in prison lest at a word from John, the people en masse would revolt against his own rule and by implication, the rule of Rome. Now we know from scripture, in addition to that, that Herod had other reasons for putting John in prison, that John was calling, to him, to, calling him to account for his own sin. But John then was something of a national figure and crowds flocked to him. 
Now, the Gospel of John, written, by the way, not by John the Baptist, but by Jesus' disciple, John. John's Gospel has the religious leaders in Jerusalem sending an envoy out to talk with John to find out whether he was the coming Messiah himself or not. John's Gospel tells us that even the Roman soldiers were asking John what it would look like for them to repent, what it would look like for them to live ethically and in purity. Such was John's fame and reputation and influence. And part, if not all, of John's ministry took place at the Jordan River, not far from Jerusalem, close to Jericho. And people would come to him there to be baptized. And again, by immersing themselves in the river under his hand, they symbolized their full surrender to God, their repentance, their turning away from sin and turning toward the things of God. Now, one day in the crowd, a carpenter came who traveled all the way from Galilee in the north. And he stood in the crowd, and I imagine he probably stood there for a while watching, uh, listening to the words of John, witnessing the, the ministry of John, observing people who had been stirred by the truth to go to John and be baptized in the water. And Matthew records that when Jesus himself made his way to John in the water, we don't read this in Luke, but Matthew has it for us, that John was actually caught off guard by Jesus coming to him to be baptized. This is what Matthew says. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? See, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And Jesus had nothing to repent of. On the contrary, just as the people came to John as a prophet and as a spiritual leader, John understood that he himself now stood before the greater prophet and leader, whose sandal he himself was not even worthy to untie. So it was John that really should have been baptized by Jesus. But Jesus responds to John, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John, in what I think is his last formal act as the forerunner of Jesus, baptizes Jesus. Now, if Jesus never sinned, why did he need to be baptized? Truth is, we don't know. But we suspect some things. I suspect that it was just his public demonstration of what was already the reality in the privacy of his own soul, namely, full surrender and commitment to the will of God. Because repentance, which means to turn away from sin, by necessity also means a turning toward something else, and that is God and his ways and his lordship and his will for our life. And so Jesus, just as he embarks on his formal and public ministry, Jesus begins, his first step is this public, ritual, full commitment to God. And that commitment, of course, would mark every day of his life, right up until the day he went to the cross, when he said, you know what, not my will, still not my will, but yours be done. And maybe also, just as sinners entered the waters as an act of acknowledging and confessing their sins and being symbolically forgiven or washed clean from their sins, maybe so Jesus entering the water was numbering himself among the sinners 
identifying himself with them. I don't know, but I think those two things make a lot of sense. But however Jesus understood his own baptism, he, he considered it necessary to fulfill all righteousness. This was somehow an essential part of his stepping into what God would have him do. And so under John's hand, Jesus is submerged under the water and into the will of God, and then he emerges from the water and takes his first step on the road that ultimately will lead to the cross and then to the tomb and the empty tomb and beyond. Later on, Jesus, in fact, would refer to his, his, his trial and suffering and crucifixion and death as his baptism, as another kind of baptism. And, and surely he knew today as he stepped into the water that this suffering later was the inevitable outcome of his full surrender and commitment to God's will. Most of us, I suspect, don't walk into our commitment to God with our eyes as open as Jesus' eyes were. We usually don't think as we surrender our lives and ourselves to God that he might actually at some point ask us to surrender it all in practice. We don't actually envision God saying, trust me and surrender your health to me, your kids, your home, your job, your finances, your very life. And there are many people in the world to whom God says, I need your life. And they lay it down for him. Wednesday is, Wednesday is the day that I set aside every week for sermon preparation. And this past Wednesday in my own devotions, uh, Wednesday morning before going to work on the message, I read this. This is a quote from St. Francis of Assisi. Fix the eyes of your soul on the one who is our good shepherd. He is the perfectly obedient one who endured terrible sufferings on the cross to save his sheep. The true sheep of our Lord are the ones who continue to follow him as he leads them through struggles or mistreatment by others or when he allows insults to be hurled or through times of extreme dissatisfaction they will continue with him even when he leads through bodily illness or spiritual temptation, enduring all things to the end. By walking with him continually, they receive everlasting life from the Lord. It is a great shame to many of us who are known as servants of God that while the apostles and early saints actually walked with him through every kind of trial, we think we are deserving of heavenly glory and honor merely because we know their deeds from scripture and can easily recount all that they said and did. Most of us don't have that expectation that God may actually ask us to walk through significant trials with Jesus. But Jesus walked into his commitment with God knowing exactly where it would lead him. At his baptism, Jesus knew what his identification with sinners and what his absolute commitment to the will of God would require of him. And yet he did it. He walked that road and saw it through to the end. Now, as Jesus came out of the water... Jesus was praying. Again, another detail that only Luke includes for us. Luke often highlights the essential place that 
prayer had in Jesus' life. At the most significant events of Jesus' ministry, Luke often tells us that Jesus, in the moment, is praying. Before choosing 12 of his many followers to be his apostles, he spends the night praying. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Just before Peter's great confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, he's praying, Jesus. Luke 9, 18. At his transfiguration in Luke 9, verse 29, it says that Jesus is praying, and that's when his glorious transfiguration takes place. In the garden just before his arrest, in chapter 22, and even on the cross, Jesus is praying. And of course, right here at his baptism. Don't know what he's praying, doesn't tell us that. But just the consistent practice of Jesus to be in intentional communion with his God and his Father. And if Jesus gave prayer such a place in his life, how much more essential is it for me and for you? And Luke, in fact, is, uh, includes in his gospel two of Jesus' most intentional teachings on prayer in chapters 11 and chapter 18. And one of those, chapter 18, I'll actually preach in just a few weeks. But as Jesus is praying, something wonderful and mysterious happens, something supernatural. The sky is opened up, and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, and God's voice declares, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It's, it's, a, it's a unique, it's a remarkable event, and there's something worth pointing out here in the text that helps us understand what this is all about. We usually think, or I usually did, that this was a public sign with God declaring for the benefit of everybody there that this Jesus coming out of the water was his own son. But I think the text seems to indicate that this is kind of a private moment. Matthew and Mark make a point of saying, Jesus saw, heavens open up and the Holy Spirit descend. Matthew and Luke say that the voice says, you are my beloved son, that God is actually speaking and addressing, speaking to Jesus, not speaking to the crowd. John's gospel adds the detail that John the Baptist also saw the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus and uh, that God had told John the Baptist, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John said publicly, I have seen and I testify, I bear witness that this is the Son of God. And I wonder then if in Mark's gospel, which has the voice saying, this is my beloved Son, I wonder if God is saying that to John in fulfillment of his promise that we hear in, uh, in the Gospel of John. But whether all of the people around saw or heard or understood anything, it's at least clear in the Gospels that this sign is primarily for the benefit of Jesus, not for the crowds in general. See, as Jesus begins his journey to the cross, as he begins his own ministry as the bringer of God's kingdom, God shows him the Holy Spirit coming down to rest on him. And God the Father declares to him audibly and in no uncertain terms that you, Jesus, you are my son. I love you. 
I take pleasure in you. And how Jesus must have needed that affirmation. His position as the dearly loved child of God was the necessary starting place or center point for his whole life and ministry. Now think of what Jesus would experience in the three years after his baptism. Mockery at the hands of his own brothers. Open hostility and persecution by the recognized spiritual leaders of the people. A band of followers who consistently proved to be spiritually dense and personally shallow. On at least two occasions, the tide of public opinion swung very quickly from adoration of Jesus to rejection of him. And of course, on the second occasion, it led directly to his crucifixion. How often did he say to his closest followers, do you not understand? Or where is your faith? One of them eventually betrayed him to his death. Another denied even knowing him. All the others abandoned him. Now think about that. Now that's a pretty demoralizing three years. How would you like your professional career to be characterized by things like that? How, how long would it take you to say, I, never, I didn't sign up for this? 20 or 50 years ago, um, typically employers would seek to motivate their employer, employees to optimum performance by what was called extrinsic motivators, things outside the employer. So they'd give them a raise or a bonus or a promotion or some kind of award or negatively by the threat of being fired. The trend today is to motivate employees intrinsically by helping employers feel good about their job. Do I like my job? Do I think that what I do matters? Do I like my coworkers? Do I enjoy going to work every day? Jesus was intrinsically motivated, and it's a good thing. There was no reward for him, no consistent public affirmation, no material gain for what he was doing. His knowledge that he was the beloved son of God kept him going. If, if he had leaned on anything else for strength, it would have failed him. What is your motivator in life and in ministry? There's only one real effective motivator, isn't there? If you do not have confidence that God is your father and loves you deeply and is pleased with you, then what happens? Well, if we don't know that we are God's dearly loved children, then the crises of life overwhelm us and we lose hope. The diagnosis causes us anxiety. We wonder bleakly why certain things are happening to us. Last night, I visited one of our life groups and in the conversation, the talk came to the topic of suffering and the observation was made that in, in the midst of, and I don't know, I'm not quoting exactly, but in the midst of suffering, it's essential for us to know the heart of God. That if we're conscious of the heart of God toward us, then, then our perspective on our circumstances changes. If we can trust that God is good, loves us, has our good in mind, then there is peace and security and stability in the midst of the hard things that are happening. But if we don't know, 
that God is our father and we're his beloved children, then, then the hard things of life can overwhelm. Also, if we have not heard God call us his beloved, then the voices of everyone else will sound more loudly in our ears and we'll be wounded more frequently, more easily, more deeply by other people. Unlike Psalm 27, which says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? But if we don't know how great the love of God is for us, that he's lavished on us, that we might be called his children, then we will not necessarily stand secure. And the voices of the people around us will be louder and we will be afraid. If we do not know with confidence that we are God's beloved children, then all of our religion, all of our ministry becomes mere duty for God or even for other Christians. And there's no joy. And it turns into our attempt to work toward God's favor instead of working from a starting place of being loved and favored by God. See, for Jesus, and I think for us, it's the declaration from the Lord, all God, our God, the Almighty who reigns, his declaration that we are his beloved children. That is the essential starting place for our life and our ministry. That's the anchor we can cling to. That's the motivator for what we do. It's, it's the center for us. And as we read on in the Gospel of Luke, we see that it's precisely Jesus' position as the beloved Son of God that becomes the point of attack for Satan in the very next chapter. Yeah, I will. But before getting there, Luke reinforces this idea, this, this declaration of God as Jesus uh, being his son, by inserting, I don't know if you notice, inserting Jesus' genealogy right here in the text. See, Matthew and Mark, they go directly from the baptism to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. But Luke, somewhat awkwardly it would seem, inserts Jesus' family tree here after the story's kind of already begun. And, and you kind of wonder why. Well, Luke doesn't do anything by accident. Luke's genealogy is different from the genealogy of Matthew, by the way. Matthew starts with Abraham, and then from David on, Matthew and Luke's genealogies, family tree of Jesus, diverge. They're entirely different. Matthew follows the dynasty of David, and Luke tracing a different line of descent from David. Now, this might have to do with their different purposes in writing. Not sure. But Matthew, of course, writing to the Jews to present Jesus to them as their king, as their Messiah, starts with the first Jew, Abraham, and from David, maybe tracing the line, not of birth descent necessarily, but this, the line of succession to the throne, which doesn't always follow from father to son. Sometimes there's, you know, nephew takes the throne. And if the dynasty of David had continued, I think it would have ended up coming to Joseph and legally to Jesus. And Luke maybe is tracing Jesus' actual biological heritage. In the line of 
biological descent and the line of succession to the throne can diverge and reconverge at any given moment. So that's one possible explanation to the different genealogies. But in a sense, that's actually a side issue because the point of Luke's genealogy is that he traces Jesus' ancestry through David, through Abraham, all the way back to Adam and then to God. And I think that what Luke is doing here is partially identifying Jesus as the Savior, not just to the Jews, but for the whole human race, that he shares our own ancestry, for all of us could trace ourselves back through Noah and to Adam. But Luke also goes back one step further from Adam to God and sets the genealogy here between the baptism and the temptation in the wilderness to draw attention to the fact that while we are all, in one sense, children of God, Jesus is uniquely and perfectly, eternally, the Son of God. And that's why I think that the New Testament describes our own position as children of God as not being simply the reality of our sin being fixed somehow, but that we become children of God because God has placed us in Christ. We don't just become children of God because of what Christ did for us, but it is actually Jesus' own eternal, perfect, unique, beloved sonship that we ourselves participate in. We are not, Jesus is not God's child, and we also are God's child. Jesus is the Son of God, and we are in Jesus and share that same sonship. It's not a parallel sonship. We are God's children in Jesus. After Jesus' baptism and Jesus' genealogy, Luke moves then into the first event of Jesus' ministry in chapter 4. And this is going to be the subject of our next sermon, but I want to touch on it briefly here. Jesus goes into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit. He fasts for 40 days, 40 nights, a, a spiritual act of preparation for what he's going to do. And then Satan comes and tempts Jesus. And do you remember what Satan's very first words are to Jesus? Who knows? If you are the Son of God, then why don't you take care of your hunger? Just turn these stones into bread. You'll be fine. Why don't you jump off the temple? God won't let you die. What a great way to make a name for yourself. Hey, why don't you worship me and see all the kingdoms of the earth? They can be yours. Same things, I think, that, that Satan tempts us with all the time. We'll talk more about this, but aren't our great temptations the satisfaction of our own appetites? Man, I hunger for food or what else? The, the quest for success and fame for chasing the kingdoms of this world, the things that the world has to offer. And I think the point of the temptation story in the context of the sonship of Jesus is that for Jesus to be confident that God was his father and that God his father loved him profoundly, that was sufficient. Quite literally, he didn't need to eat. Elsewhere, he said, disciples said, you know, hey, we got you some food. Aren't you hungry? He said, you know what? My food that which sustains me is to do the will of God. Jesus didn't need to eat because he knew God loved him. He didn't need to make a name for himself by doing some stunning act. 
Because God loved him. God was his father. He didn't need the kingdoms of the world. He had God as his father. See, for Jesus to be confident in this, his own sonship became for him the starting place and the center of his life and ministry. It became his anchor by which he could withstand all of the attacks of the evil one. And that is so true for us as well. If we're going to have any satisfaction or joy in our life and ministry, if we're going to face up to the attacks of the evil one, whatever form they take, we will only do that effectively and with joy if we have one ear that always hears the voice of God say, you know what, you, I just delight in you. My heart smiles when I look at you. You are my, not just son or daughter, my beloved son and daughter. The love of God is the starting place and the center place for us, just as it was for Jesus. I think that's what moved Jesus from the river to the cross and the tomb and beyond. And I think that that's what moves us. And that unless we have the confidence in the love of God our Father, this, what we do here every Sunday, what we do here as ministries throughout the week, will lack power and joy and substance, and it will drain life instead of giving life. But I want you to know this morning that because you are in Christ, that God says to you the very same words, you are my beloved. And, with, and don't miss the second part. With you, I am well pleased. We can stop trying to please God. We can just live out of our son and daughtership of him and know that he is pleased already. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that refreshing? To stop, stop trying and just be who we are. And so this morning, I remind us of who we are, the children of God. Let us pray. O oh God, our Father, a word that we spit out so easily and quickly when we pray, our Father in heaven, Father God, for God, you are our Father protector, provider, source of life, who is affectionate toward us, who delights in our successes, encourages in our failings, and whose love never lets up. Father of each of us, Father of us as a church, we are so thankful and I pray that our experience would be the experience of Christ. That even in suffering, if that comes, we would trust you, surrender to you, and be confident that you are good. That you, by your Holy Spirit, will rest upon us, empower and equip us. And that we would have joy in you because you already have joy in us. How delightful it is to be your children. In Jesus' name, amen.